All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you today, including the great Serb debate on the show today. 1.7 million Canadians are now receiving payback notices from the CRA. Yeah, it's payback time for people who collected too much CERB during the pandemic. Thousands of people who collected CERB payments when they were not eligible in the first place. Now the government wants their money back. So these payback notices are going out. Here's the question today. Should they pay the money back or... Should the government just write these overpayments off and say, it's okay, you can just keep your Serb cash? Get set to call me on that later today. There's a campaign in Canada now for Serb amnesty. Should people who collected Serb payments just be allowed to keep the money, even if they weren't eligible? That's coming up today. Also on the show today, is it time now to drop the vaccine mandates and travel restrictions, unvaccinated Canadians still not eligible to fly in Canada, even for domestic flights, lots of unvaccinated workers still off the job. Is it time to drop the mandates, drop the restrictions? Get set to call me on that one today, too. Canada's tourism and travel sector really raising pressure on government now to drop some of these travel restrictions. So we've got all that and lots more on the show today. But first... We start with the mayhem yesterday at that East Vancouver gas station. One man in hospital after being stabbed in an apparently random attack. Looks like he's going to be okay, but this was terrifying. The video that came out on this yesterday, I'll tell you, it was just absolutely wild and frightening. A suspect arrested. This was out of control. You have a guy in a car hits a pedestrian gets out of the car punches one another guy you get the other guy stabbed at the gas station the video showing a suspect trying to get away in a stolen motorcycle and then the arrest at gunpoint by vancouver police all caught on video absolute wild mayhem more random attacks in the city a great job on this story by reporter Grace Key last night on Global News. She interviewed David Leonardo, who was a witness. He saw the whole thing, tried to help one of the victims. Here's what he had to say. All I hear was, uh, watch out, and I see, I look over, and I see the gentleman start, like, he had a machete in his hand in one, one hand, and then he had a knife in the other one. He started swinging at another person that was looking over. And then he turns to me and he starts swinging at me. So I I ran the other way. That attacker guy leans down and starts stabbing the gentleman in the back. Okay, yeah, David Leonardo, there was a witness on the scene, tried to help one of the victims there. All right, let's discuss this now with my guest, Rob Rothwell, former Vancouver Police Department superintendent. I recommend his book, recently released 33 years the unfiltered memoir of a cop and i'm very pleased to welcome him back rob thanks for coming on hey thank you mike glad to be here rob i know you had a chance to take a look at that video and i know you've been in some crazy scrapes like this in the past yourself right as a police officer have you ever been involved in one like that oh yeah similar events where you know we're on the wrong side of the knife if you will Uh, what's interesting about this is that so much of it was caught on video whereas typically you know it gets reported but it's not captured on video and the public really doesn't have an idea of what's going on in a knife attack but uh, they are released frightening and uh, and really devastating in terms of injuries 
Yeah, and and fortunately, the the man who one of the victims here in hospital, but it looks like he's going to be okay. It sounds like he might have been even stabbed in the neck. Man, he's lucky. He's extremely lucky, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of that when you're watching that unfold? Well, I mean, it's really horrifying to see that occurring on our streets and public at, you know, 6 in the morning when everything should be quiet. Uh, the question really here is what precipitated that? What were the triggers that led this fellow to act such a way? I mean, obviously, he's completely deranged at that point. And whether that was drug-induced or uh, mental illness that uh, was out of control, we don't know yet. But I can assure you that the police will do a very thorough job of investigating the event and tracking back to find out, really, you know, what, what was driving this. And, uh, you know... It, does this person have a history of this type of event or is this a one-off and uh, what were the triggers? So those are important elements that need to be presented to the Crown and ultimately presented to the court. And, uh, and you know, Mike, one thing that I'd really encourage would be for the press to follow these cases of these stranger attacks to find out what happens in court and uh, is the individual remanded perhaps for a psychiatric evaluation or are they released with some sort of conditions that, you know, they may or may not follow. And, uh, so a little, you know, shining a light on these events at the front end is great. The public gets an idea that these events are occurring. But I think really what we need to do is shine a light further down the continuum to find out what happens in court and ultimately whether or not charges are laid, proceeded with, and uh, whether there's conviction. And if there is a conviction, then what happens with this individual? And, uh, you know, is there incarceration or, or are there some steps toward treatment if it is a mental illness or a drug addiction? Uh, those are the factors that get overlooked. And then these people yeah. end up on the street again. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think we do need a, a closer look at the, the system and how these incidents are handled. Vancouver police indicating yesterday that they suspect that there was a, a mental illness episode in, involved in this. There were some reports at the scene of some drug paraphernalia falling out of a car. So there may have been drugs involved as well. But I mean, you know, as a guy yourself in 33 years as a police officer, you've dealt with a lot of this type of mayhem on the streets of Vancouver. In your experience, like, when a police officer responds to a violent case like this, and let's say there is suspected mental illness or drug drug use, or maybe both, uh, and you 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 feel that someone needs some sort of a psychological assessment, in in your experience, like what happens to people like that? I mean, do they end up getting treatment, or do they just end up being back on the street to do it all over again? Well, that's a big question. I would say that it's a bit of both, uh, frankly. But, you know, the police, when they realize that there's mental illness involved in the case, they will recommend in the report to Crown Council that a psychiatric evaluation be part of the proceedings. So even before a charge is laid, they may want to uh, hold the person in custody, uh, lay the charge, frankly, and then uh, the judge can order a psychiatric evaluation to determine whether or not the individual is criminally responsible for his actions. And, you know, uh, somebody that is so mentally ill that they are detached from reality to the point that they're not criminally responsible, well, that's not going to proceed through a criminal court to a conviction, but there are other remedies and that need to be imposed in the way of a, some kind of custodial treatment in a forensic facility where they start uh, to deal with mental illness and not just a revolving door where the subject's back out on the road. Yeah, I guess may we're lucky that this was a. I guess lucky in a way is a weird way to describe it, but you know this was a knife and a machete involved here, and not a, a not a firearm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I think I might have mentioned that these events do occur in Canada, where we have uh, knifing events uh, with multiple victims. That uh, if firearms were more readily available, as in the U.S., could easily have been a mass shooting, which in the U.S. is defined as four or more people being shot in a single event. Uh, you know, so imagine if this fellow had a firearm 
capable of uh, either automatic fire or even uh, non-automatic fire. But um, you can't outrun a bullet as easy as you can outrun a knife in a person's hand. Uh, so it could have been really, truly tra- tragic, uh, you know, had a firearm being involved. So fortunately, that wasn't the case, which is most often the Canadian scenario, but not always, as we know. Yeah, and for hopefully the fellow who is in hospital today makes a full recovery. But sometimes, you know, an event like this is traumatic. You may recover physically from your injuries, but mentally yeah. uh, there there are more more lasting injuries from an event like this, would you say? Oh, I would say undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be some severe effects on the individual's uh, comfort in public. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll look at everybody with some degree of suspicion that comes close to them. Yeah. Do you think this is getting worse? I mean, we hear the Vancouver Police Department making the case that these type of random assaults, attacks are becoming more frequent, that for a day on average, random stranger assaults in the city. I mean, you are 33 years on the streets of Van- as a police officer. Do you think it's getting worse now just from what you're seeing? You know, I feel it is. I feel the violence is a bit more gratuitous, uh, you know, whether that's a reflection of what we see in, you know, on TV and in the media and all the various uh, computer games and online games. Uh, it, it may well be a bit of a reflection of that or perhaps, uh, you know, the, the stress of the pandemic is pushing people over the brink. But it does feel to me that way for sure. But I don't have the stats to back it up. We'll find out at the end of 2022 whether or not there has been a spike in these stranger attacks. Uh, it's going to take some time to assemble that analysis. But um, the police will figure it out. Uh, and uh, if there is, you know, a spike, then society uh, needs to figure out how to deal with it. Rob, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Cool. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Rob Rothwell there, former Vancouver Police Department superintendent. His book is 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. He thinks it's getting worse with these random attacks on the streets of Vancouver. Do you think it's getting worse? Call me on the open line and let me know. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. What are you seeing out there? Do you think these type of attacks are becoming more common? Let me know what you think. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Take a quick break. Come back. Get your calls going. Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilor, also joins me. Stick around. Talking about some of the random violence we've been seeing on the streets of Vancouver. Yesterday was just off the scale. The mayhem at that East Van uh, gas station, one man recovering from a stab wound in hospitals. Check in with Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor, has been speaking out on this issue. Please welcome her back. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Councillor, we talked about this issue before, about some of the violence we're seeing and random attacks we're seeing. And this one, though, was one of the worst ones we've seen. What went through your mind when you saw this? And the video is terrifying. It, it, it stopped me cold. I'm sure it did everybody that was watching it. It was, uh, it's, it's horrifying and it's petrifying to see that you could just be going about your daily business in the morning at 6.30 and uh, somebody hits a pedestrian with a vehicle, um, gets out of the car, uh, yielding a knife and a machete. There's no way for the average resident to defend themselves against that. And it's incredibly scary. I can only imagine how that victim felt and how all the um, folks that were close by that were in the area looking on saw that i mean you could literally hear in the video people's um kind of screams of dismay and people running to get to take cover from this individual that is just obviously clearly not in their right mind yeah what should be done about it 
I think that that's the real issue is that we've got to really identify what the root causes of these situations are. It's happening more and more. Um, people have heard and we know that uh, we've got four random assaults every day in the city, but the level and the severity of these is escalating and it's going uh, to something that's sending people to hospital. I mean, we're really fortunate that the DPD responded as quickly as they did um, because this could have been a whole lot worse. And I think it brings up the question is, well, you need to make sure that we do fully fund um, the emergency services um, because if that's your person and your loved one who is literally being stabbed seconds count and you need to know the, the other end of the phone that those people are going to show up uh, for you because otherwise we could be seeing a much more serious outcome in of life and so I think that's so, the first thing is that we need to support it and you know this council actually didn't fully support the budget I heard part of your interview with Mayor Stewart yesterday that said we funded the VPD through the four years of council untrue um, in the third year, as you know, um, the police ask was not funded, and that resulted in an appeal to the province who required council to reinstate those funds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Councillor, thank you for coming on with your thoughts. No worries, Mike. I think that uh, I'll add that we really need to get to the root causes of this and uh, find out what yeah. is happening so that we can work to address those underlying causes. It's it's really concerning, and it's playing out in a number of ways in those gaps. A lot of it's mental health and addictions, but yeah. it's also a lot of just emboldened crime as well. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby Young, with her thoughts. Let's uh, fit in a couple of calls here before the break. Graham on the line, calling from Delta. Hi, Graham. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I just want to say that this is a far more important conversation that you're having today than the one yesterday over gun control. I mean, this is this is going to take some hard work to solve, some leadership with our politicians. I. I I can't help but think of what happened in Toronto a few years back with the largest mass killing in Toronto and the gentleman with a minivan yeah. driving down the yeah. sidewalk. And, and, and there was the police officer who didn't fire his gun at the end uh, to arrest the man. It was terrifying. Yeah. And what do you think? What do you think the answer is? On. I think we need institutions again, as much as I hate to say that, uh, Try and house the mentally ill, particularly. I mean, this is now a, a, a crime. So it's. I know we have places for criminally insane people, but uh, we need some institutions to help to put these people in. Yeah, I mean, thanks for the call. I mean, when you look back at some of the decisions to close down some institutions for the mentally ill, there was a lot of support and public support for that idea. Uh, to de-institutionalize people, but there just doesn't seem to have been the supports put in place for people once they were released from some of these institutions, and I, I think we're seeing the results of that now. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev, go ahead. Well, according to the professor, SFU professor, we're just imagining this. The stabbing didn't occur. Remember he told us we need to defund the VPD? And, yeah. and, and Kennedy Stewart's solution is hire more communications people and also defund the, the Vancouver police. I don't feel safe. The vast majority of the citizens of this city don't feel safe. The only people that think everything is great are the decision makers who think that everything is hunky-dory and there's nothing going on. That's you, the problem. Do you think more police officers would prevent something like this from happening, though? I'm not. I'm not sure it would. Thank you very much for the call, Dev. I appreciate it. Phone me on the buzz line on this one today. Let me know how you're feeling about what you're seeing out there and what you think the answer is. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. Or that's the open line number. What am I doing?
Let me give you the correct number to call, okay? Call the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ is the number. Leave a voicemail there. All right, let's talk about the big changes in drug laws in British Columbia announced this week by the federal and the provincial government. The Ottawa saying Canadians 18 years of age and older will be able to possess a cumulative amount of previously illegal illicit drugs, 2.5 grams of opioids, including heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, among other drugs. The announcement from the federal government said that this is a request from B.C. It's the first of its kind of exemption in Canada. It goes into effect next year, January 31st of next year, and it will last for three years as it is reviewed. Why are they doing this? The provincial minister responsible said the government wants to remove the stigma of drug use that is causing some people to use drugs alone. They believe that by decriminalizing possession of small amounts of drugs, it will reduce drug overdose deaths. Will it, though? Let's discuss that now with my guest, uh, Professor Carson McPherson from Simon Fraser University's Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Professor McPherson, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, this is an issue we've been talking about for a long time in B.C. The B.C. government has been pushing for this. Uh, police departments, police chiefs in Canada have also been saying that decriminalization is the way to go. What do you think of this move? Do you think it's a good thing? Yeah, I think, you know, I think realistically we need to be measured in our expectation of, of the impact. Um, you know, realistically, uh, you know, the, the overdose deaths, I don't see that this is going to have a massive impact, certainly in the short term. Um, you know, the, the reality is um, when you look at Bonnie Henry's special report that was put out on this, uh, talking about the decriminalization of drug users, you know, it is a slightly different narrative than the, the Chiefs of Police report in British Columbia and of Canada that, that talk much more about the substance and, and certainly had greater calls for, uh, you know, building out the infrastructure of our healthcare system where, you know, when police are interfacing with uh, people who use drugs, that are looking for help, that they can actually refer them into uh, places where they can can achieve that. Yeah, I mean, we have an overdose epidemic in our province, as we all know, 2,224 suspected toxic illicit drug overdose deaths in 2021, 9,400 deaths since 2016. I mean, these numbers are staggering. For people out there who are wondering how making possession of drug dangerous drugs legal at least in small amounts will somehow reverse those that trend what can you say to them because i I think for a lot of people it may be counterintuitive you say wait a minute you're saying it's okay to have these drugs i thought we're trying to stop the overdose deaths your thoughts yeah i mean right out of the gate you know no one initiative or one policy move is going to make uh all of the difference this is going to be a collective effort and i think when when we talk about decriminalization um you know i certainly understand the point being made the predominant point being to to reduce the stigma and and to you know create some sense of uh of acceptability um but that has a consequence as well you know if if acceptability and and reducing stigma also can create permissibility right and so i think uh, when we look at uh, case studies of, of drug policy in the past when we removed deterrence. I don't know that it has the effect that we're, we're always looking for. 
Um, but if you consider decriminalization as part of a you know much broader approach that that you know places like Portugal have done, where they build out a healthcare system that can respond to individuals who are struggling, um, you know, then then I think that makes sense. My worry is that you know in British Columbia and, and in Canada at large, we're not there yet. So you know, my my concern and and uh, you know for for police and, and first responders who are going to interface with these uh, individuals you know, what do you do? Where, where are you going to send them? There's wait lists all over the province, all over the country. Um, you know, we can't provide those warm handoffs and those linkages right away. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the overall impact is. And, and, you know, when you look at a lot of the data of uh, people who use drugs, you know, a lot of the, the crimes where they're typically, um, you know, severe incarcerations are, are applied to are for crimes of survival. Uh, assault, theft, you know, things like that, the behavioral uh, aspects that, that take place in addiction. So, you know, I, I worry that, um, you know, we're getting pretty excited about something that that, uh, that I'm not sure is going to have a great effect on on the people who are dying uh, every day right now. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is a controversial move, and there's been some prominent opposition to it, notably next door in Alberta, Premier Jason Kenney criticizing this move. He says that Alberta is alarmed by this announcement in British Columbia, that they'll be watching it very closely to make sure there are no negative impacts on Alberta. Not sure what those would be, but he is he is certainly raising concerns about it. I mean, you, you used the word permissibility earlier. Like, what is what does that mean? Because I've heard people say, well, wait a minute, is this normalizing the use of these dangerous drugs? Is that what permissibility means? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's a it's a complex one. It means a lot of things. It, the reality is, individuals who are struggling with severe substance use disorders for for periods of time where chronicity is in, in effect, um, you know, two two and a half grams is a pretty small amount. And I you know I see the calls for that from various stakeholders in the discourse right now. Um, but you know, I worry about uh, you know youth and, and younger uh, individuals who you know maybe were previously deterred, and now that they see that. You know there are there are no repercussions or things like that, so they might be more apt to to you know try these substances. And um, you know I'm concerned about that for sure. Um, I just think the more that we create a social acceptance to to using these deadly deadly drugs, um, you know I think that that has consequences on the other side. So while we may provide some destigmatization, I think um, you know it it also could create just a level of acceptability that that. Uh, becomes not too helpful in the future for for the next generation kind of a kind of a politically incorrect thing to say isn't it in your in your business i mean there's a, there's a lot of people in you know who are on this file who think that this is the way to go with it to decriminalize to make drugs more even make drugs more available and by prescription yeah, listen, I'm I'm not against the 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 approach of decriminalization. I, I just really believe yeah. that it needs to be part of a much bigger conversation and 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 set of actions that lead to the the building out of a healthcare system that can respond to this crisis. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly understand um, you know the the need and the desire and, and support above that uh, to destigmatize and to create those conditions. Um, but again, you know, if you look at uh, jurisdictions like Portugal, where you know, decriminalization was a big part of their national strategy. That was really only because they needed to uh, move from the judicial system to the health system with the dissuasion courts where they could actually link individuals struggling to appropriate levels of care on the same day. Um, yeah. And in British Columbia, that, that just simply is impossible. 
Speaking of Dr. Carson McPherson from Simon Fraser University, that's one of the, the key points that goes through my mind as well. Like, I'm not opposed either to harm reduction measures, but, you know, I just wonder if the missing piece here is treatment and recovery to get people off of drugs. I mean, that just seems to be the, the harder part or the more, more expensive part. The federal minister this week did announce $11 million in additional funding for British Columbia for drug programs. But I mean, when we look at the scale of the, the problem and the challenge we have here, is that a drop in the bucket, that kind of money, $11 million? Yeah, I, I think it's a drop in the bucket for sure. And, and, and I also think, you know, a lot of these services, we, we lack the, the connectivity, right? And so, so part of it is developing the infrastructure, but also part of it is developing the system that, that communicates and, and is linked together where individuals can move amongst the continuum. And, you know, that, that is something that we've struggled with in this province and continue to in this country, in fact. Uh, you know, and I don't see that, that gaining too much momentum. So, you know, I think, you know, initiatives like the, uh, decriminalization initiatives like safe supply. You know, I don't know too many people that that would be against them, so long as they're part of a much bigger continuum and bigger conversation of how we're going to get people well. Um, you know, otherwise it, it seems quite uh, quite like a you know emergency response, but what we really need a you know a healthcare response. Yeah, the other thing that occurred to me is I in Vancouver, the Vancouver Police Department has been saying for a long time that they don't charge people for possession of small amounts of drugs now. Uh, and they say that's been their policy for some time. Now, when you speak to advocates for drug users, some of them will say, okay, well, they might not write you a ticket for possession of a small amounts of drugs, but what they will, what police will do is they'll take their drugs away. So they may not charge you, but they'll take the drugs from, from you. D I mean, like the, the fact that police say they haven't been charging people for possession of small amounts, does legalizing it make any difference? Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be clear, I mean, this is the decriminalization part. I mean, legalization yeah. would be... Right, would be decriminalize, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. decriminalize. No, no, I mean, I think you make a good point. I mean, there's, there's been a fairly de facto understanding that, that this has been decriminalized in a large way for, for quite some time. Certainly people refer to, you know, the Vancouver bubble and, and things to that effect. So, you know, given the amounts that, that, that they're talking about, um, you know, I've my personal opinion is I, I just don't know that this is going to have uh, you know a large degree of impact. I do like the idea of, of uh, destigmatization. I think anytime we can do that, I think everyone agrees with that. Um, but again, if you if you actually play this out, um, you know when when individuals are are being interfaced with and and want to go to to recovery options or, or various health and so, social service options. You know, I just don't see that we have a system in British Columbia that, that can respond in yeah. a way that's going to be effective. So as we continue talking about decriminalizing small amounts of illicit drugs, Carson McPherson from Simon Fraser University is my guest. Let's take some of your calls here. Bill on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Yeah, uh, I am totally against normalizing any of this stuff. Uh, my niece passed away about a week ago now. She didn't even make her 25th birthday. And we've been battling this for years, her addiction issue. And what we found was the biggest obstacle to getting her clean and getting her on the right track was the very people that are putting these ridiculous policies in place to begin with. Because she said, well, why do I have to do anything? You know, this is, this is acceptable. This is their telling us the thing to do. She was one of the people. To go you're, free you're, drugs. 
Okay, Bill, I, I'm very sorry for your loss, and I, I'm grateful to you for sharing this. Like, So you're saying that your niece, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear she's passed away. You tried to get her into treatment, is that right? Years. This went on for yeah. years, and yeah. we, we did everything we could, and a lot of the problem was, too, is the supports went in place. There were times when she would say, okay, maybe I'll give it a shot. We couldn't get her into anywhere. There's no room. There's no support systems. The biggest thing they did was enable her. They just kept, you know, these policies, normalize this, normalize that. You know, I'm worried for the kids out there. They're coming up into adulthood that are going to, why can't I carry a pop cocaine around? You know, like, it's just, it's ridiculous. Do you think that she would have really tried to to kick drugs and get in and, and complete the recovery if she had been, if she had gotten into a good program? I believe, I really do believe there was a time about a year okay. to go through and she had the support of family, but what she didn't have the support of was the government or whoever, whoever these people are that are, that, that are deciding that this is okay to normalize this and just tell everybody, you know, like she was never told no. The people that are yeah. supposed to be in charge of our society and our city she, they were the, yes, yes, yeah, we could, you know, we'll take care of you. Come and shoot up here. Here's free drugs. There's no incentive for the addict to go clean, and the family has to fight every step of the way, and in the end, we lost the battle. Okay, Bill, thank you for your call, and I'm sorry for your loss. Carson, what do you think about that story? Yeah, I mean, first of all, terribly sorry for your loss, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's a story I've heard uh, all too common. You know, I think, I think again, we come back to, to what it is we're really trying to do. And, and we have a disease of addiction that, that, um, you know, we have to address. And, and if the strategies, uh, sort of offset some of those, um, you know, behavioral symptoms that take place, but, but really, you know, create longer term conditions for the disease to thrive. I, I just don't know that we're going to make the progress that, that the public thinks yeah. we're going to make sometimes when these announcements come out. Let's take another call. Karen on the line in Surrey. Hi, Karen. Go ahead. Oh, hi. This is a very uh, important conversation to have. And I I have to say there's so many missing pieces to this whole announcement. I find it uh, almost grandstanding that uh, the backs of victims of uh, drug abuse are uh, grandstanding and saying they're going to make it decriminalize this. However, where is the enforcement? The, the drugs that are on our streets are killing people. They are toxic. There are uh, gangs making money off of the off of the death of our loved ones. I, my son lost a best friend to drug overdose. Uh, he he was one of many that I've heard about, and it just I'm appalled appalled that there's no treatment. This man that talked about his niece is yeah. is just heartbreaking, and to know that there's no enforcement. You think about the drugs that are coming into Canada through our ports. Less than 3% of our, our containers are checked. We need to do a better job. We need to get people on clean drugs and get them on treatment, get them off the toxic drugs that are keeping the criminals' pockets filled. Okay, this Karen, thank, thank you for the call. It's possession of small amounts of drugs are being decriminalized, but obviously drug dealing is still illegal. Do you think there needs to be more enforcement? Carson, we just got 30 seconds here, sadly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the dealing side is an absolute enforcement need, and I, and I you know I agree. I think we need to step that up. I, I think that 
you know, to, to get to the bottom of this and to solve this uh, in any in any way is going to require a very multi-factorial approach. And, and that's certainly one of them. It's not the only one, um, but we don't want to shy away from that. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, here we go now with the government efforts to recover CERB payments. CERB, of course, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. It was one of the most popular programs during COVID for people who lost their jobs or had their hours cut back at work. $2,000 a month if you qualified. But now many CERB recipients are receiving payback notices the CRA and the government wants some of this money paid back. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dina Ladd. Dina is the executive director of the Workers Action Center. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dina, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Dina, why are some people receiving these notices that, hey, you've got to pay some of your CERB money back here now? Well, I think sort of two and a half years after the pandemic, the government is realizing that maybe some people were not eligible depending on what their criteria was. But but the thing is, what we have to remember is that there was lots of confusion at the beginning of the pandemic. The government's own criteria kept changing day to day, week to week. And so many people were very unsure about what you were, what documentation you were supposed to provide, what was the criteria. And in fact, the government then they also admitted that they were unclear and that they made a lot of mistakes. And so I think that we have to remember that craziness that happened during the pandemic and, and that, of course, people applied. There, there was a major crisis going on. We had a pandemic. People had to stay home. They had to figure out how to pay their bills and put a roof over their heads. And so I think, of course, um, mistakes happened on either side. But the most important thing to remember is how do we ensure that workers who are the most vulnerable coming out of the pandemic don't have to pay the price? How many people have received repayment notices? Do we know? I'm not sure how many people have received the notices, but we are hearing from a lot of low-wage workers, people who are in precarious work, people who are still having a hard, hard time making ends meet, that they're receiving these notices, which I think is really a, a waste of the government's time. I think, you know, a lot of the workers that I work with are in precarious employment, are working for cash, are misclassified as independent contractors, and they don't sometimes even get the proper documentation by their employers around how much money they've made, when they worked, and one of the criteria that I think was quite problematic in applying for CERB was that you had to prove that you'd made $5,000 the year before or in the last 12 wow. months. Well, a lot of, a lot of workers um, don't have that documentation or, or didn't know that they had to provide it. And maybe that employer has gone bankrupt and they can't find them anymore. And so now the CRA is saying, you have to prove this, you have to prove that. And, they're asking people who have the least amount of resources to prove it. Yeah, it I'm t- taking, make sense. A, taking a look at one report, Dina, that suggests an estimated 1.7 million people may be receiving these payback notices from the CRA now. Some people being told you have to pay back $2,000 or more. 
in Serb overpayments. And what would you say to people, though, who who would argue, like, if these people got Serb money and they weren't eligible to receive it in the first place, they got it in error, why should they not pay it back? I mean, they didn't deserve to get it in the first place, right? Well, I think the thing is, is that, you know, I don't think anyone who applied was, was just looking for a free handout. I think people who applied, you know, especially with the, a lot of the people that I know, applied because they'd lost their job. They had um, had hours reduced or they were incredibly worried about getting sick. And I think you have to remember back when we didn't really understand the pandemic, like many of us were living with people who were very vulnerable or immunocompromised or had kids. And so, you know, at that moment, you know, you're thinking about how to take care of your family, how to keep a roof over your head. And maybe at that moment you were not strictly eligible. But I think the thing is, is that I don't think people applied just because they were trying to look for free money. And I think we have to remember that. And now, two and a half years later... But, but two and a half years later, people are really struggling, right? Like, we yeah. people's savings have been depleted. Uh, oh. People have been suffering from not having regular work for two and a half years. And is that really where we want to waste our time, going so, after so people who may have gotten $2,000? So you're saying that the government should just write these payments off and say, okay, you know, people who received CERB payments in error, you, or you weren't eligible, it's okay, just keep the money. Yeah, because I think, like, let's look at employers in this picture, right? A lot of employers got a lot of bailout money during the pandemic. And in the case of long-term for-profit, uh, long-term care homes, they actually provided that money back to their shareholders. Nobody's going yeah. from the government, like, make those shareholders pay back that money. No one's going to Amazon and saying, oh, man, you made all this profit. Are you making sure that you're paying taxes on that? So I think it's a bit of a double standard. Like if the government's going to go after workers, let's go after all those companies that made a hell of a lot of money during the pandemic. Here's the thing, though, that I think is probably going through a lot of people's minds as as they listen to this. And I've heard from people in this situation. At the start of the pandemic, people who looked carefully at the eligibility criteria for CERB were wondering if they were eligible realized they were not eligible to collect the money so they did not apply they did not apply for the serb money even though their neighbors might be getting the serb but they played by the rules they knew what the rules were and they said i'm not going to apply for this money if i'm not eligible to receive it and now they're okay looking so at, that's and, definitely... well, hang on hang on hang on a sec Sorry, because now, go ahead. yeah because now they're looking at people who who did get the serb money when they weren't el- when they were not eligible to receive it, and now people are saying, "Oh, it's okay. You can just keep it." Well, what about the people who played by the rules and didn't apply for it because they knew they were not eligible? Yeah, no, I totally get that. Right? I mean, yeah. I think that people also who played by the rules were very cautious and maybe didn't even understand the rules. And because we, like, we're a worker center, right? We deal with hundreds and hundreds of calls from workers, and many workers decided not to apply for CERB because they were really worried that this was going to happen, right? But but we also have to remember that a lot of workers don't have access to the Internet, didn't ha- have English as their second language, uh, don't have access to computers and data plans to be able to apply. 
And so that was also the reason why lots of people didn't apply. That was certainly the case for us, and we, we spent a lot of time trying to help people apply to serve. I, I guess the thing is, is that we have to understand that people, I don't think, applied for CERB out of some horrendous kind of, you know, like we're going to cheat the system. I think, I think we have to understand that there was a lot of confusion at that moment, and a lot of people didn't understand the rules. There were some people, as you say, that may have understood the rules and didn't apply, but remember, 9 million people did apply, and it was really needed yeah. and kept people afloat. Yeah, I get that, but I and, just and, I'm, I'm just wondering about you know people who played by the rules and now they and now they're standing there probably feeling like chumps, like well you know what a sucker I am. I played by the rules. I, I maybe I should have just asked for this money anyway, even though I didn't deserve to get it because now other people are, be, are being told you should keep it. Yeah, but were the rules really clear though, Mike? Right, because the the rules kept changing. As someone who watched those press conferences every day. And every week, we were constantly changing the information that was coming out from the government. It was not that clear. The rules weren't clear. And even um, workers who talked to employees of the federal government got different criteria at different times when they phoned in. The system completely got overloaded at the beginning. And so I would say the rules were not very clear. And the rules were hard to follow for some workers, as I said, who didn't have the proper documentation okay. and didn't have the proper ability to, to abide by those rules. Okay, the CRA, though, is saying that, all right, if you're in a difficult financial situation, maybe you can't, you don't have the money to pay back these CERB overpayments right away. That's okay. We'll work with you to work out some kind of repayment schedule. Is that not reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is that we have to remember that people are, we have a, a huge increase in people living in poverty after the pandemic. We have a massive increase in food insecurity across the country. We've seen food bank usage triple, quadruple, and ha homelessness increase massively. And that is a trend that's happening right across the country, right? And so we have to balance those issues with, are we going to make people who are now working for the first time in sectors that have been closed for two and a half years, um, are we going to contribute to that trend or are we going to just help raise everybody up to, to be able to cope with what happened during the pandemic? Okay. It's a very interesting issue to say the least, and we're following it closely. Thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Yeah, no thanks, Mike who are helping. Oh, and here we go now with the vaccine mandates and restrictions in Canada. Is it time to drop them now? We see the rates of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID are dropping. Is it time to drop the mandates and restrictions at the same time? There's a lot of pressure here now on the federal government to drop some of these rules, especially in the travel and tourism sector. There was a news conference this week by all the major travel organizations in Canada asking the government, look, please, we've had enough of this. This is hurting our industry. Please drop these travel rules on a vaccination status. Have a listen to this here now. This is Pat. Patrick Doyle from American Express Global Business Travel. The travel and tourism industry has only just begun the long road, long road 
to recovery after two years of uncertainty. Health restrictions first implemented at the beginning of the pandemic are contributing to loss and postponement of business travel, conferences and events across the country, which potentially has a long-term impact. The federal government must act immediately to remove obsolete pandemic provisions. Okay, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked about this issue yesterday. Does not seem to be in a particular rush to drop these mandates and restrictions. Have a listen to what he said here. As much as people would like to pretend we're not, we're still in a pandemic. Canadians who die every single day because of COVID-19 in our hospitals are particularly at risk as fall approaches of new variants. We need to make sure we're doing everything we can to keep Canadians safe, to make sure that we can get back to the things we love as quickly as possible without putting ourselves at risk. Okay, federal vaccine mandates still in place for a lot of workers. It sounds like, just judging from what Trudeau said there, that that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, the travel restrictions still in place there. You can't get on a plane if you're unvaccinated. But check this out now. This is interesting. Things are changing for sure. All of Canada's big five banks now have now suspended or removed mandatory vaccine requirements for their staff. Wow. That's all the big banks. Royal Bank, Bank of Nova Scotia, CIBC, Bank of Montreal. TD Bank, they've all lifted their compulsory vaccine policies for employees over the past few weeks. Should the federal government do it too? Let's discuss with my guest, Richard Johnston, co-founder and partner, Ascent Employment Law. Very pleased to welcome him. Richard, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. It's interesting to see the big banks dropping some of these uh, vaccination requirements. Are you hearing a lot of that in Canada or other companies doing the same thing? Right now, Mike, I think it's about a 50-50. So we're seeing that a lot of employers um, who either have a vaccinated staff or there's not so much risk to the public, they're starting to to lighten the, uh, you know, these types of things like vaccine mandates and some of the more stringent requirements, both for employees and for the public coming in. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Let's say you're an employee of one of these banks and you were unvaccinated and you were you lost your job as a result or you're pay, placed on leave or something. Now the bank, now your employer is saying, what, it's okay for you to come back to work now? Is that what's happening? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't know of, of particular instances where they're saying you specific employee who are fighting us on the vaccine mandate can now come back to work. But presuming that's the case, that's right. You can go back to employment, uh, make your way back in. And as long as you're taking whatever protocols they have in place, taking whatever precautions like, you know, sanitizing stations and all of that stuff, um, you can get back to work and you can do what you've always done pre-pandemic. Yeah. Do you have what about do you get any back pay for the time you're off work? I guess not, huh? No, you wouldn't. And interestingly enough, this is actually a, what we would call a mitigation strategy for the banks. So when they put people off on leave when the vaccine mandate was in full swing, um, by recalling them now, they limit some sort of the risk that, that could arise if there's a wrongful dismissal claim. So by offering them reemployment, they're essentially offering them a, a chance to limit their damages. So it's actually a really, a really wily strategy for the banks to be doing. Speaking to Richard Johnston, Ascent Employment Law, the federal mandate's still in place, though, right? So if you're a federal employee, you must be vaccinated. Is that still the case? 
Not in all sectors. So they, they can right. pick and choose what sectors they think apply. So for travel, for example, we heard Trudeau talking about uh, travel. And he's in an unfortunate position because you don't know what you don't know. So you can't look back and say, well, we know that 100,000 people could have been infected. But they've kept it in place in the, the travel sector. In terms of banks, which are federally regulated, they're lessening it. And that's okay. They're reducing those requirements and getting back to business. So we're going to see this industry by industry. Right. And what's your read on the the willingness to change at the federal government level? I mean, just judging by what Justin Trudeau said in that clip there, you know, he talked about, well, there could be new variants in the fall. Wow, in the fall. So it sounds like these restrictions could stay in place for months to come. Is, is that what you think is going on? They could. And I think it's going to be in, in the travel sector for quite some time. And I think overall, the federal government's going to be a little bit slow to change because their game plan will be, we can't be seen to kowtow to the, um, the convoys. We can't be seen to turn on a dime. Part of their game plan will be to, to protect people, but also to create stability. So for them to just yeah. change and then have to reinstate later is going to be a bit of a mess and they'll get blamed for it. So I suspect that part of this is just a, a more cautious approach from the federal government. Right. What is the, some of the case law in this? I mean, you're with an employment law company here. I mean, have any workers who, let's say they're unvaccinated, they lose their job, have any workers successfully tried to fight that through the courts or elsewhere? We're seeing it come up in two venues. Number one would be from a human rights perspective. So a lot of people are trying to use um, the loss of their employment as a human rights ground, saying, well, my human rights have been trampled. I have the right not to be vaccinated and still to work. That, that hasn't passed muster. Unless people actually have a medical reason or a religious reason not to be vaccinated, which, frankly, in my experience, is, is a pretty small proportion. Um, they're not getting traction through the human rights tribunals. In terms of wrongful dismissal claims, we are seeing those um, coming full force. And a lot of employers are defending them, saying, look, it was a reasonable thing to impose at the time. And maybe you're entitled to employment standards minimums. But beyond that, you got a duty to go out and try to replace your employment and find somewhere you can, you can fit back in the workforce. So have there been any successful challenges under a wrongful dismissal claim? N- not knowledge? that we're seeing. Not that we're seeing yet. They're making their way through the system, and unfortunately, it's a bit glacial right now. Right. What is your read on the the landscape on this in in the country right now? I mean, you know, we heard the prime minister continuing to invoke, like, well, we've got to trust the science. We've got to trust the experts here. There's still a risk from COVID. But, you know, I mean, I know more people now who've got COVID than ever before, and they're almost all triple vaccinated. Uh, you know, fewer people going into hospital as a result. Like at some point, there's got to be growing pressure on government to drop these mandates. Your thoughts? There really is. And I think that yeah. it's it think that that's where an industry by industry approach is really beneficial. I think people can wrap their heads around the fact that when things were, um, you know, in the full blows of the pandemic, there were all these restrictions in place. And I think most of the public could rationalize that now that things are waning or COVID yeah. seems to be less uh, impactful. Employees are, are, you know, they're, they're fighting a bit more about uh, the restrictions and they're saying, look, we need to get back to business and, and customers want it too. So there's a, big, there's a big aspect of this that's market driven. Okay. Thanks for coming on with your analysis on it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's talk about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial now. What a wild case this was. It attracted attention and curiosity around the world. The verdict is in. The jury in the case yesterday ruling in favor of 
Johnny Depp. Have a listen to this report now from ABC World News Tonight. A seven-person jury siding with Johnny Depp in the trial against his ex-wife that has made global headlines for weeks. At issue, whether his ex-wife Amber Heard defamed him when she wrote about being a victim of abuse. The jury awarding Depp more than $10 million in damages. The couple married in 2015. The case involved an op-ed article Amber Heard wrote in 2018, calling herself a victim of domestic abuse without mentioning Depp by name. Depp had argued it defamed him, that it hurt his career. The jury agreed. Depp saying, the jury gave me my life back. Okay, Amber Heard, though, also partially winning her counter-lawsuit over comments made by Johnny Depp's lawyer when he called her allegations of abuse a hoax. And the jury awarded her $2 million in damages. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Sandra Spurgeon. Sandra is a trial attorney with more than 120 state and federal cases successfully litigated. She is the author of Courage to Stand, Mastering Trial Strategies and Techniques in the Courtroom. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Sandra, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You, you bet. Okay, what a wild case this has been, a, a wild ride. Uh, people around the world followed this case. What is your reaction to the verdict? What did you think? Well, from an attorney standpoint, I wasn't surprised uh, because when they began the jury deliberations, I was in, uh, very focused on the length of time that the jury uh, spent analyzing Depp's jury instructions as it pertained to the claims of defamation and damages for Johnny Depp against Amber Heard versus the relatively short period of time that they spent considering Ms. Heard's claims against Johnny Depp. So from that standpoint, it didn't surprise me. Yeah. Were there any turning points in this trial as you followed it that were there any kind of big points that were landed by any side that you think may have may have turned the tide one way or the other? I do. I believe that, and as I teach, credibility in front of a jury is very important. They are always looking for who is going to be brutally honest or candid with them and at every aspect or turn. And if you have an issue of credibility in front of the jury or if your client has an issue of credibility, and so Ms. Hurd's um, I think one of the most damaging things for her was that they didn't get out ahead of how she had spent the $7 million in the divorce settlement that Mr. Depp had given to her. Uh, I think she said she had donated it, but at trial it came out that she'd used some of that money for her own personal use uh, for her living expenses. Number two was the um, fact that the TMZ reporter came in and said that they had received a tip that when she filed the restraining order, that they that she was going to pause as she came out for photographs to be taken of her, which clearly appeared to have been staged. And third, I'm not sure why she felt the need to throw Kate Moss into the middle of the trial, but it certainly did not help her that Kate Moss showed up and really um, came about and said what she said, and you know regarding him potentially pushing Kate Moss down the stairs is completely yeah. un- was completely untrue. Okay, how about the the uh, damages that have been awarded by the jury here? $10 million awarded to Johnny Depp. 
Uh, Amber Heard awarded $2 million in damages in her counter lawsuit. Do you think any of this money will actually be paid out to the two parties here? Well, Johnny Depp is uh, actually sitting in the driver's seat regarding whether he will enforce the judgment against Mr. Heard or against Ms. Heard. We can expect this case to be on appeal for a couple of years, so I don't think that uh, we're going to see a resolution of the what happens in terms of payments anytime soon. And if so, it's going to be a confidential settlement. But I. I certainly believe, I mean, from what we're seeing on the news today, Ms. Heard does not have the ability to satisfy the judgment. I think it's important to note that $10 million was granted in compensatory damages, which is potentially a bank, um, it could be, it's potentially bankrupted by Ms. Heard because it is compensatory and not punitive. And then the jury did reduce the punitive damages award. Okay, speaking of Sandra Spurgeon, she's a trial attorney who's been following the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Like when when you consider the aftermath of this, do you think either of the people here feel that this was worth going through all this, this 7-week long trial? I mean, what hap- what kind of impact do you think this has had on their careers? Well, I think that if you, you know, if you're watching the news, I think that this case for Johnny Depp was not about the money. It was to show Hollywood and the producers that he is still very marketable and has a following and has a fan group. And, you know, he even came out in the news and thanked the jury for giving him his life back. And I believe that everyone, uh, at least as of now, believes that this has restored his credibility and shown that he he uh, does have a fan base and is worthy of hiring again. Now, and I don't, and I think that the entire trial was the way that he was touching his lawyer, the way that he was coming across smiling and trying to be very witty. It was all about showing that he was a nice guy, that he was a desirable guy, that people liked him, that women were attracted to him. And I think his legal team and their consultants did a good job in in making uh and making that look um that that is true. I can't imagine Miss Hurd would ever have imagined that she was going to find herself in this place seven weeks ago. Yeah, last question for you. There have been a lot of comments uh, on the aftermath and effect of of this case domestic abuse and domestic violence is a serious and major problem in our society and some analysts wondering if this ruling this judgment could have a, a chilling effect on victims of genuine domestic violence and abuse maybe prevent them from coming forward with their with their complaints or going to the police do you think that's the case? I mean, do you think that has set back the cause of victims here, genuine victims? I don't think so. I mean, you know, the media circus, they have to talk about something, right? And, you know, certainly that's Ms. Hurd's legal team's mantra today. But I think that it really levels the playing field that men are equally uh, victims of domestic violence uh, as women. And so I think it brings this conversation to the table, uh, and I don't think it does have a chilling effect. I think what it has a chilling effect upon is is uh, 
providing inaccurate details or accounting of what happened. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your analysis today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh